0: Welcome to the Reach Young Adult Ministry podcast with your teacher, Pastor Taylor Gabbard. There is a stirring. There is a hunger. I went through a uh, career change recently. Um, I've only been in the ministry for well, less than six months, really. And before that. I was in another career path, the career path I I told myself most of my life I was going to do for the rest of my life, Um, and I was in that career path for for 11 years. In the process of being in that career path, I had some incredibly frustrating days and and frustrating moments, and, and the goals that I had set out for myself, they didn't seem to pan out. They didn't ever seem to work out for me. Anybody have frustrating days at work? All the time. All the time. I think the reason that we have these frustrating days at work is that we don't understand what we're doing there. We don't understand why God has us there, what the point of being at work is. Philip has this phrase, right? What's Philip's favorite word, anybody? Abide. Abide, Abide. right? And he always says you have one job. That one job is to abide. Because when I go to work and I focus on the expectations of what I have to get done at work, I set myself up for failure from the start. Because now when stuff doesn't happen according to my expectations for the day, I'm gonna tank. It's gonna be frustrating. It's gonna be annoying. Now think long term. When the, when the expectations I have for the job, whether that's promotion or raise or whatever, when those things don't happen, I'm back to frustration. But when I go to work, with one goal in mind. How do I worship God? How do I abide in God? Now, all of a sudden, that task that I didn't get done, that promotion that never seemed to pan out, that's not the point. The point is what what happened to my heart every time I stepped into that building. We're going to start a series today on Elisha. Now, Elisha, in... in uh, it, when, what we're going to see is the very beginning of his story where God is going to be working on his heart. And we're going to see this process of heart work that goes on in Elisha. And, and really, honestly, here's the takeaway. I'm going to give you the point right up front. The reality is this. When you look at the lack of heart work that you've allowed God to do in your life, when you look at your missing focus that you have on what you think is important, and you compare that to Jesus' heart, And what Jesus thought was important, there's a huge gap. There's a huge gap in what Jesus saw as important and what we see as important. So tonight we're going to look at Elisha and we're going to see what that heart work looked like. So if you'll turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 19. This is really the first first time we're going to see Elisha. Um, It says, so he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat while he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he went with the 12 and Elijah came over to him and threw his cloak on him. Then he left the oxen behind and ran after Elijah and said, please let me kiss my father and mother. Then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back for what have I done to you? So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and cooked their meat with the implements of the oxen. And gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he got up and followed Elijah and served him. So the very first thing we're gonna see is the work in Elijah's heart that that he is committing his heart. Right? When it says that he cooked the oxen with the implements, it means he broke the plow and used that for the fire. What's happening here is that Elisha is burning bridges reckless abandon there's no way back okay right off the bat right off the bat this man doesn't have a plan b he doesn't have a well you know if this this whole profit thing doesn't work out i'll just i'll you know i can go over here i can handle it this way no he completely destroys his ability to go back on the commitment of his life that god is leading him to in this moment he's selling out He ties up his loose business, he kisses his mother and father, and then he destroys his way back. Reckless abandon. Here's the thing. Jesus lived with one purpose. Jesus lived with one purpose. Jesus was constantly glorifying God. He was knowing God. He was demonstrating who God was to us, making God known. And he was glorifying God, lifting God up. Jesus only had one purpose, Elisha in this moment is demonstrating that kind of reckless abandon that says, I have one goal. I have one thing that I have to do. It's whatever God wants me to do right now. God wants you to live with one purpose. Here's the thing. That purpose is written out for you in the Bible. If you are not reading your Bible on a daily basis, you will lose focus on your one purpose you will not be able to understand what it is that God wants you to commit your heart to. So the very first thing, the first step, is that Elisha's heart is committed. Now if you'll flip over, go to 2 Kings chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now we're going to see the submission of the heart. Now it came about when the Lord was about to bring Elijah up by a whirlwind to heaven that Elijah left Gilgal with Elisha, And Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel went out to Elisha and said to him, Are you aware that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I am aware. Say nothing about it. And Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, "As surely as the Lord lives, and as you, and as your, and excuse me, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you." So they came to Jericho. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elijah and said to him, "Do you know that the that the Lord will take away your master from over you today?" And he answered, "Yes, I know. Say nothing about it." And Elijah said to him. Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As surely as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now fifty men from the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. And Elijah took his coat, folded it, and struck the waters. And they were divided here and there, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. All right, so we see in verse 1, God is about to take Elijah. And everybody seems to know it. right? The sons of the prophets, uh, the, the sons of the prophets would have been preachers in the land. They would have been people that, that were spreading the word of God. Um, th- this actually was um, this is interesting because we see in the time that Elijah is facing off with Jezebel, the, the prophets are in hiding, they're being persecuted by Jezebel. So this is showing, uh, I think this, this kind of growth, at least there's a movement of support for God in the land at this time. So the sons of the prophets keep telling Elisha, you know, your master's going away. And we see that some time has passed here because they've clearly been together long enough that this is pretty upsetting to Elisha. He's like, yeah, I don't want to talk about it. Don't mention it, right? But then, uh, and and something that I don't want you guys to miss here is that the, the, the places that they go, this is kind of a retracing of Joshua's first steps in the promised land. In Joshua chapters 1 through 8, uh, Joshua uh, moves through these areas, and what this is doing, what the the reader at the time of this text would have seen, is a comparison between Elisha and Joshua. So, what do we know about Joshua? Joshua was the heir to what Moses, he was the, the successor of Moses. So, Elisha, in this moment, he is being compared to Joshua as the successor of this person. And and again, the audience would have picked up on that. Uh, God doesn't leave his people without leadership. That's the whole book of Judges, is every time that there's no leadership and there's turmoil and there's all all this problem, uh, God raises up a judge to lead his people. And so what's happening... With Moses and Joshua and with Elijah and Elisha, is that God is passing on that torch of leadership to his new appointed person. He's giving authority from one person to the next person. So the, the first thing that we see with the submission of the heart is surrender. Three times Elisha is tested, and he said, and, and Elijah says to him, Stay here. You know, when when we disciple people, oftentimes early in discipleship, we give them homework assignments. We say, okay, I want you to think about this question, or I want you to think about this verse, and then I want you to come back to me. And a lot of times, it's very revealing about someone's heart, how they handle homework. Sometimes you'll meet with somebody and you'll say, I want you to do this thing. It's usually very small. And if that person never comes back because they never did the homework, that tells you where their heart was the whole time. This is kind of what Elijah's doing in this, in this setting. He's saying, stay here, I've got stuff to do. And every single time, Elisha proves where his heart is, that it's in this submission, and he says, he says no, I won't leave. I, I'm going to go wherever you go. Jesus was the master of this, Right? Someone comes to him and says, how do I get to heaven? And he looks at at this guy and he says, sell everything you have and then follow me. And what happens? That guy (coughs) never comes back. Jesus gave that guy some homework. He said, go take care of this. He was testing that guy's heart. And what we see um, is that Elisha shows the desire of his heart, the true desire of his heart, with his actions. The disciples did this too. When Jesus looks at them, he says... Will you guys leave me now, too? And what do they say? They say, where would we go? Where would we go? You have life. right?" So my question to you is, are you following someone? Are you following the Word of God? Are you following Jesus with this kind of desperation that says, wherever you go, I'll go, because this this is life. There's nothing more important than this. This is the only thing that matters. This leads me into discipleship. Discipleship. It's God's method of passing along Christ-likeness. We've been given the Word of God, but the way that we see how the Word of God is played out is in people. You follow someone who's trying to be Christ-like, and that teaches you how to be Christ-like. You spend time with that person. And here's the other key about discipleship. There's an element of obedience in discipleship. When I came back after a decade, pretty banged up, I rolled back into town, and I met Philip. And Philip took me under his wing, and he began to walk with me. And very quickly, I realized that there was safety in doing exactly what Philip told me to do. He was a lot closer to Jesus than I was. And so when he said, I want you to do this, because it's what the Bible says... I did it every single time, even when I didn't want to do it, because I realized he was giving me the keys to walking in life. I was obedient to him. I submitted myself to Philip's authority. Does this rub you the wrong way, the idea that you're going to have to submit to someone's authority? That's the whole point of sin nature. Sin nature is the rejection of God's authority. It's the rejection of Jesus' authority. But this is really foreign to us because we live in a country uh, where our politicians answer to us and, and we, we really have diluted this idea of respect. Now, here's the thing. Uh, you've never lived under a, a physical, worldly king. But if you had, if you were an ancient Israelite who ever lived under the kings, you would realize Jesus is a king. The king the king of kings, right? The king with all authority that's been given to him. So as we try to be like Christ, the way that he produces Christ's likeness in us is he's passed that authority, that, that uh, model of how to be like him down through the generations. It literally goes believer to believer all the way back to Jesus himself. And when that person tells you, I want you to do this because it's going to help you be more like Christ, If that person's on a peer level with you and you've decided they really don't have any authority, you know, you don't have to do what they say, you probably won't do it. But when you've given that person, when you've submitted to their authority, then they're telling you how to be like Christ will have an effect in you. In verse 8, Elijah parts the water. This would have, again, to the audience, it would have been a clear sign of of a comparison to Moses. And he does it in front of witnesses. Again, these these prophets, these preachers are there that support Elijah, um, that respect him. They're there, and they see this this parting of the waters. So the second step is that Elisha's heart is submitted. I want to ask you guys this question. What do you think is the worst thing that's going to happen if you submit to an authority in your life? Like the first time that you go to discipleship and you sit down with that person, and you're like, I'm going to make this person... God's authority in my life, and then they're gonna go. Yeah, you gotta quit your job, and move to Africa right now. That's the only, it's only option. No, you know what they're probably gonna do? They're probably gonna look you in the face of me say, "How's your quiet time? Did you read your quiet? Did you read your Bible seven days this week? No? Okay, do that this week. Hey, I want you to memorize this verse. Hey, I want you to do this thing. Right? They're not just gonna start at the top. They're going to assess where you are, where your walk is, and they're going to guide you. Okay, the, uh, Elisha it doesn't just wake up one morning and he's just the most bomb follower of Jesus, okay? What happens is he walks with Elijah. He spends time with him. So this takes us to our, our next point, equipping of the heart. Look in verse nine. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, ask me what I should do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. And as they were walking along, along and talking, behold, a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire, and they separated the two of them. Then Elijah went up in, by a whirlwind to heaven. And Elisha was watching it, and he was crying out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And he did not see Elijah again. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. Listen, I have ordered several Ubers in my life. But I'm pretty sure even if you pay for the XL, chariots of fire don't show up, all right? This would have been a shocking moment. This would have been huge, all right? Like bigger than like the girl on fire from Hunger Games, all right? This, This would have been a scary, crazy moment. Okay? They get separated by this chariot of fire coming between them. What does what Elijah ask? He's, he's getting at his desire. What do you want? What, what does your heart actually want? Now this is not a, a wish on a genie, right? It's not like any one wish, and I'll just I'll grant you. Okay? This is a lot like when God asked Solomon what he wants. It's a test. Of what's in the heart and the Bible says that when we pray in God's will that it will happen right and and as I say that I know that some some of you are sitting in here and you're going I pray for so many things and those things don't happen and I pray for them in Jesus name and they don't happen okay I'm gonna give you guys a phrase this phrase uh, has really changed my prayer life a lot instead of praying in Jesus name or if it's in your will, which to me, uh, it, it became this diluted phrase that meant, I want this, and I want this to be your will. And what I've started praying instead is, if it's good in your eyes, here's the acknowledgement. If it's good in your eyes, it will happen. And if it's not good in your eyes, I desperately don't want it. If it's not good in your eyes, Jesus, please Don't let me have it. Please take it from me. And if it's good in your eyes, I don't have to worry about it. It's going to happen. I'm going to get it. It's going to be there. James says we don't get what we want when we pray because we usually pray for it in our own, for our own pleasure, for our own comfort. The reality is the test that we see with Elisha that reveals his heart, is the same one we see with Solomon that reveals his heart, which is that they want... Godly things. They want the things that are within God's will, that are good in His eyes. Now, the double portion, uh, the double portion comes out of Deuteronomy. It's a uh, a birthright. What he's saying is, I want to be the successor of your ministry, of what you're doing. I want to take on the responsibility for everything you have. And then we have to see, we see the vigilance of his heart. Why does Elijah say, if you see me go? The reason, uh, Elijah seems to know how he's about to be taken. And what he's saying is, if you are attentive to spiritual things, then you're ready to take my ministry. If If you're looking for things that are unseen, right? This goes back to what I was talking about in my job is that, I spent 10 years frustrated because I was looking at my, my wants, my desires, my expectations, the things I could see promotions, achievements, accomplishments, even just the daily list of tasks that I had to get done, instead of the unseen, which was the hard work that was going on, the equipping of me to eventually do what I do now. I look back and I see God equipping me through my whole life to get to this point. But I was ignoring that at the time. Honestly, in a lot of places, even fighting against it. you got to pay attention to the unseen. If you're not, you, you will miss it. Paul's encounter on the Damascus Road, Paul sees Christ, and the people with him don't. They can't see it. You can miss the unseen easily, all the time. The, whole, the Bible's saying... If you have faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. It's talking about the belief that lets me see what God's doing. you got to focus on the unseen. So they see these chariots of fire. In, in, um, in ancient Israelite tradition, there was this question. It was, where can God be seen? This question uh, guided a lot of their conversations about the Old Testament, this understanding of where can God be seen. It's answered entirely in completion in the New Testament by Jesus. Jesus is where God can be seen. He's the fulfillment of that question. When we look at him, we see God. But in the Old Testament, we, had a, we have a different thing. We have types. So Elisha is a type of Jesus. He's meant to represent what Jesus will someday be, and yet he's not perfect. He's not the Messiah. He won't complete what Jesus completes, right? But but we see uh, sort of this um, pale compared, compared image to who Jesus will someday be in Elisha and the other thing we see in the Old Testament is comparisons alright oh, um, how do you fit God in your brain you can't there's no way if you, can, if you could fit God in your brain you misunderstand him it's impossible to get him in there and that should be comforting because if he, if he could fit in there he's small right? so the reality is this the way that a lot of Old Testament writers explained who God was was they took something people knew, like a God of one of their surrounding religions or cultures, and they said, our God is this times a thousand. It makes their God look puny and small and incomplete. This is one of those moments. Baal, the God of the surrounding cultures of this time, he was often called the Rider on the clouds. Right? Now, if you remember my series on Elijah, there's a series of Elijah moments where he's comparing God to Baal and showing how Baal can't match up. So it would be fitting that in Elijah's last moments on earth, it's another one of these comparisons. If Baal is the rider on the clouds who's supposed to be in control of life or death, and what do we see in Elijah? That that Baal can't overcome death. And now in this moment. Elijah's being taken by God. He's riding on the clouds away. He's been taken by God, and he's not going to die. He doesn't die. This isn't a death. He's whisked away by a God that's more powerful than Baal. Again, to this original audience, this would have been a clear comparison of who God was compared to who Baal was supposed to be. And then Elisha's going to call out, Chariot of Israel... Listen, the chariot was a super superpower weapon back in the day. This was like their nuclear bomb, right? This was a big deal to have chariots. It signified power and strength. And here's the interesting thing. He's not referring to the chariot of fire. He's referring to Elijah. He's actually calling out that Elijah is the chariot of Israel. The whole point is Elijah represented the divine power of God for the nation of Israel. He's recognizing Just how important and how amazing Elijah was as he is being taken away by God. And then he tears his clothes and he mourns. See, but what we see is that Elijah's heart has now been equipped. Right? Elijah's heart, it desires the right thing. And it's looking for the right things. It's looking for the unseen. Look in verse 13. He also took up the coat of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the coat of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the waters and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when, and when he had struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho opposite him saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah has settled on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed down to the ground before him. Then they said to him, Behold, now there are are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and search for your master in case the Spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him on on some mountain or into some valley. But he said, You shall not send anyone. Yet when they urged him until he was ashamed to refuse, he said, Send them. So they sent 50 men and they searched for three days, but did not find him. They returned to him while he was staying in Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Then the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold now, the sight of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. And he said, Bring me a new jar, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring of water, and he threw the salt in it, and said, This is what the Lord says, I have purified these waters There shall not come from there death or unfruitfulness any longer. So the waters have been purified to this day in accordance with the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Okay. Throughout the Bible, miracles and signs are designed to point us towards God and God's presence. So in this moment, these miracles are designed to testify to the fact that Elisha, has inherited Elijah's ministry, and, and, and the presence of God is upon him. He is the new authority as, a, as God's prophet. Uh, this happens uh, several times in the Bible. Um, Moses, when he passes on some of his authority to the 70 men that would help him uh, judge and run the nation, they immediately, uh, when they receive that spirit, they immediately begin to prophesy. And it's evidence that that spirit has transferred. We also see this in Acts. When the church receives the Holy Spirit, they begin to, to speak in tongues and to preach to the people because it's a testimony to God's presence. That, by the way, happens with every new people group in Acts, as the spirit of the God as the spirit of the Lord is uh, giving testimony that He has been imparted to these new people groups. So um, Elisha is going to go through a series of miracles. Um, they're going to build his credibility. Um, the first thing he does, right, is he picks up the cloak. I think that this is important because when he comes back and he's holding this cloak, this coat, um, it's not like Elijah just ran off without it, right? He's not just wandering around the woods without his cloak. So having it is is the first demonstration that he's not here anymore. That's why I have his coat, right? And then he approaches, um, he approaches this... Uh, the, the Jordan again, and he takes the cloak and then he is going to, he's going to say a prayer essentially. This is not a, this is not meant to be read as like a question of like, where's God? He What he's saying is, Lord, let your power be shown. Let the, let the God who was Elijah's God be shown here and be uh, present and apparent. Um, it, it's also that prayer is also demonstrating that Elisha didn't think this was his power. It wasn't him doing it. He wasn't the one uh, that had suddenly been imparted with superpowers, right? And then the same people who witnessed them part these waters and cross witness him come back and part these waters and cross. That's important because now all of a sudden he's got this group of people that can testify, okay, Elijah did that going, and Elisha did that coming. Clearly, the Spirit of God has moved to a new person. And once again, we're seeing this analogy with Moses. If Elijah was doing that miracle and that represented him being in this line of Moses, this line of heirs from Moses, now Elisha is doing it. So um, unfortunately, Elijah's very, very well liked. And, and not only that, he's got this reputation for just kind of disappearing, uh, being taken away by the Spirit. We saw that when he comes back and uh, to, to meet up with Ahab after being gone for a long time. He tells uh, the first guy he sees, he says, uh, go tell the king I'm here. And he goes, why? So you can be whisked away again, and then he's going to kill me because we can't find you anymore, right? So Elijah has this reputation for like spirit napping or something like sp- <laughs> So, so they, they're like, we got to go find Elijah. He's out there somewhere, okay? So, But here's the thing. God's going to take this, and he's going to use it to remove all doubt. Elijah's not out there. They search for three days. They go all over the place. They can't find him. He's gone. And that makes it certain that Elisha is the is the, the new receiver of this ministry, right? So now he's going to begin sharing of the heart. He's going to begin being the salt and the light in this uh, ministry to the people. So, uh... What happens? They tell him that, that in the area they're in, that this water is, is poison. That it is barren, is, that, is actually what it said. Okay? And what does he say? He says. He says, bring me a new jar or a new bowl, something unblemished, unused, clean. Put salt in it. Jesus said to be the salt of the earth. Let's talk about what salt does. Salt has several properties, but the two main ones I want to focus on is it preserves and prevents decay. It also creates thirst and helps you retain and process water. Right? This is, don't, don't miss this. Elisha, nothing about the salt is special. Nothing about the new bull is special. This is representative. It's symbolic. It's symbolic even when Elisha was doing it, but it's also pointing forward to Jesus who would be unblemished, unused, sinless, and he would be the salt of the earth. He would preserve and prevent decay. He would create thirst and quench thirst, right? This is is looking forward to the purifying effect that Jesus would have on the world. Now, and notice that Elisha doesn't himself purify the water, right? It's not a magic trick. What he does representing Jesus is what purifies the water. God is the one who accomplishes this miracle, and God is foreshadowing his son. The water went from being unfruitful and barren to purified by God, And and then it stayed purified. Things that have been purified by God, they don't get defiled later. It stayed purified. Again, this is an analogy. This is an analogy even to our own spirits. When we've been purified by salt from the unblemished Lamb of God, we stay pure. Elisha is established in this moment. In my mind, I see that he is established as a type of Christ. But he still is only a pale comparison to who Jesus would be. Which brings us, uh, so the fourth step is that uh, God shares Elisha's heart. That's, by the way, fulfillment. When God begins to use your heart and share your heart, and you begin to minister to people because of what God's doing in your heart, that's when you find true fulfillment because you will be uh, making God known. Which is, again, the whole point. This is going to take us to our fifth step, the authority of the heart. The fifth and final step is that God is the authority in Elisha's heart. That's how God maintains uh, our submission to him and, our, and continues to equip us and share us is when, we ha- is when he's established as the authority in our hearts. And what we're going to see right now is what happens to people who have not established God as the authority who are rejecting and mocking God. So look, look at verse 23. Now he went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up by the road, some young boys came out from the city and ridiculed him and said to him, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. When he looked behind him and he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 of the boys. He then went on from there to Mount Carmel. And from there, he returned to Samaria. Okay, listen. This story gets shot at all the time. People that want to detract from the Bible and attack God. God's just violent and just mean. A bunch of children got murdered by bears. That's not what happened. Okay? These are young adults. These are young men. And they are mocking God. They are mocking God because they are mocking God's prophet and they are mocking his position. This is an attack directly in the face of God. That is why they get attacked by these bears. Listen, 2 Chronicles 36.16 says this, But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people. Until there was no remedy. And then Galatians 6 7 says this Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, this he will also reap. Listen, God is patient. God is supremely patient and supremely merciful, but those who eventually uh, choose to reject him and spit in his face, they will find the only thing that's left for them, which is the wrath of God. God doesn't take lightly being attacked, and he doesn't take lightly his servants being attacked. Even if you are one, by the way. There's this whole story where Miriam and Moses, who are relate I'm sorry, Miriam and uh, Aaron who are related to Moses, they're grumbling against him and attacking God's chosen man to lead the nation of Israel. What does Moses do? Immediately, knowing the severity of what they're doing, he turns and begins to intercede on their behalf and God gives Miriam a plague. She spends 7 days out of the camp uh, because only because Moses interceded did she not get killed. She was a child of God. And yet she still took on punishment for attacking God's chosen servant. Don't grumble against against God's children. He doesn't take it lightly. It's an attack on him. And we see wrath. I I almost picture Elisha in this moment. He turns around and does like a finger gun and goes, and then these bears come out and he's like, (laughs) right but but that's not what happened okay the reality is this Elisha in that moment he said God don't let your name be dragged through the mud that curse was was righteous anger for who God is and the fact that God was under attack and God met the challenge because that's what God does 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 the authority of God rub you wrong Again, that that is the whole point of sin. Sin is the rejection of the king, the true authority. Jesus is not the president that that we elect by popularity. He is the king who has all authority, unquestioned power. And when you reject him you get what you get what you get. You get wrath. God gives grace to the humble. That that verse that verse kind of really says it all. In that verse is encapsulated the whole Bible. Is this idea of if we are humbling ourselves, what does humility lead to? It leads to God being the authority in our lives, and we begin to love Him, know Him, make Him known. And the alternative, any version other than that. It's just pride. And the Bible says that God resists pride. He opposes it. He opposes it violently. Is Jesus the authority in your life? Is the word of God the authority in your life? I have a question for you. When you're living one way and somebody points out to you, whether it's in a sermon or a podcast or you just read it on your own, that the Bible disagrees with how you're living... Is this the authority? Do you default to this? Do you just ignore that verse or try to explain that verse away? Is God your authority? Is Jesus your authority? Is the word of God your authority? Is the church your authority? Is there somebody who, who you're following in discipleship who is your authority? Who can tell you, hey, that's sin. Cut that out. Jesus is the bringer of life-preserving salt. And the alternative is, is wrath. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of young adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to REACH. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.